people are having a hard time just living. The average uh, young person now, kid, under 18, scores in the same range in terms of anxiety and depression and fear as the average child psychiatric hospital patient did in the 50s. This is Chalka Institute podcast and its pilot episode featuring Malcolm Harris, the author of Kids These Days, a book that immediately became a bestseller and drew attention from a wide range of media, including the New York Times and the Financial Times. In his lecture, Malcolm talks about the making of millennials, as well as the idea of human capital, how it is forming and influencing employment and education. In the history of generations, we have this uh, divisions. The first generation that we think of, the first modern generation, is this the greatest generation. This is the World War II generation that built up American society post-war. Their branding is really excellent, you can tell. The greatest generation. That's something they clearly came up with to describe themselves. Uh, Tom Brokaw specifically popularized this idea. When you think about what the greatest generation refers to, it doesn't refer to consumption. It refers to how they changed the world, a, a war they won, and then a society they created. After the greatest generation, we have the baby boomers, the next giant generation in America. So they're named after this baby boom. There's a, there's a huge boom in population. We associate them with culture. We still play, for example, every Christmas, all the Christmas songs are still baby boomer Christmas songs. They've maintained cultural dominance uh, decades after their lives. But again, when we look at the label, it's not about what they're consuming, it's about their place in the world. Generation X is when we first get into marketing and generations as marketing. It was sometimes also known as the Pepsi generation. Pepsi got, did a very good job by marketing themselves as associated with this particular generation. And then so well, in fact, that the whole generation became known as the Pepsi generation. Then after uh, Generation X, people started getting really interested in the value of generational labels. Two guys, William House, Strauss and Neil Howe, invent the label of the millennials. They are marketers, as is Jean Twenge, who is the person who came up with the label iGen, and she's a marketer. What she does is she goes to companies and charges about, I think it's $10,000 an hour, to talk to them about how to sell things to people in that age group, because that's what generations became. So she not only coined the term iGen, like how and Strauss coined the term millennial, she named her consultancy iGen. She named her book iGen. So it's all about generational branding. Now she is not herself iGen, nor is she a millennial. I think she's Generation X. So we have, again, people profiting from the use of generational labels. But millennial is the first generational label that gets used globally. The greatest generation wasn't the whole world. You couldn't talk about the German greatest generation, for example. That wouldn't go down so well. They'd have to come up with a different name. Uh, but millennial is everyone. Everyone's a millennial. You're all millennials. I'm a millennial. In China, they're millennial. In, in, in Indonesia, they're millennial. Everyone's a millennial. So it's the first uh, global generational label. And at the same time, it's used as a sort of metaphor for the nations themselves. Now we're gonna get into talking about what millennials actually are. In 1973, the US leaves the gold standard. In 1980, the uh, anti-worker Reagan regime takes power in the United States. 
divisions start happening between productivity and wages. And over time, the position of workers relative to their productivity decreases. You get worse and worse off over time. The gap from 1970, where you've got major sector productivity at 100 and wages roughly complement, by the time we're talking about now, and now it's even worse into the 2000s, it's doubled. So productivity has doubled while wages have stayed the same. And that, I think, more than anything, that experience of productivity increasing while what you get out of it uh, decreases or stays the same, stays flat, is what characterizes the millennial experience, especially in America. So what is the rate of exploitation? The rate of exploitation is the divergence between labor productivity and the wage rate. And this is such a, a useful statistic in terms of explaining what's going on in society that it's amazing that we never, ever use it. And no economist in America, if you ask them, you know, what about the rate of exploitation? They won't even know what you're talking about. In fact, I think the only government to ever use it or consider it was the Soviet Union um, because it is, it is a Marxist statistic. And the reason that Americans don't like talking about the rate of exploitation, in fact, don't even recognize it, is that you necessarily have the division between classes. So if you've got a, a rate of exploitation, that means you have people who are exploited and people who do the exploiting. Americans don't like to think of our society in that way. We like to think of it as one big society where everyone is trying their best and gets rewarded accordingly. You can't explain millennials and what's happened during our lives without understanding the class system, without understanding the rate of exploitation. One of the ways we find to talk about it, because it's hard for millennials to talk about our uh, historical position when we don't have the words and the statistics that we need to, uh, to make sense of it is in memes. A fun and playful way to sort of see how screwed we are and talk about how screwed we are generationally and maybe you know, fight back a little bit to communicate, push back against the baby boomer hegemony, the baby boomer domination of the discourse. Why don't you call and ask if they're hiring? You know, which is a very common thing to say to young people. It's like, why don't you go get a job? You know, just call the company and see if they are, they're hiring. Of course, they have no idea what it takes to get a job or how people get jobs anymore because they haven't searched for a job in decades. Things like buying a house, so asset prices. This generation got really lucky in terms of asset prices. Houses were very cheap, and then they got very expensive during the course of their lives. That means that this generation profited a lot, even like more than income in some cases, just from the, the appreciation of the value of their, their homes whereas millennials then have to pay rent in those homes. And this has made life difficult for millennials. The average millennial is in the United States is $30,000 in debt just for education, and that's average. You have people who are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for education. When older people said, go to school, you know, work on your credentials, uh, then you'll, you'll be set in this economy, this is sort of what we've encountered instead. In 2008, the federal government, the Obama administration, nationalized almost the entire student lending system, which we don't talk about that much because it didn't go well. And what that ended up doing was nationalizing all the profits. So the most profitable corporation in the United States is the government student loan uh, system. They make about $15 billion a year in profit off student loans on accident, and they don't know how to stop. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's a big politician in America, asked the, the accounting office, how do we stop making profit off student loans? 
And they wrote back and said, you, you have to profit off student loans. They are just profitable because millennials are profitable. But wait a minute. If technology is improving and we're getting more educated, why are wages down? If the thing that determines how much you get paid for your job is how skilled you are and more people are getting more skilled, then why are they getting paid less? No one can answer this question. No one bothers trying to answer this question. It seems like such an obvious thing to ask, like why are wages stagnated? If we're working harder, we're getting more education, they were supposed to increase. And technology, God, aren't we supposed to benefit in some way from the existence of technology if we're more productive workers? How is this happening that we're not benefiting from progress? There are a few reasons. So the first is human capital supply. If you're an individual, if you're more skilled, you get paid more. That, that's great. But if you're a society, if you're a, uh, the workers of a nation, for example, if there's more human capital supply, if there are more skilled workers, then companies have to pay less in order to buy one of them because they only need a few of them. So one of the most popular phrases for millennials, for advice for millennials, is learn to code. So you should, if you want to have a good life, you should learn how to code computers because uh, that's an in-demand skill and then you'll, you'll always be able to get a good job if you can know how to code computers. The problem is if everyone goes out and learns how to code computers because they were told that coding computers were it's important or because Google convinced the public education system to teach all the students how to code, when it's time to go get jobs, suddenly there are a lot of coders and you don't need to pay them nearly as much. Suddenly coders got very, very cheap. And this is a tactic that corporations have used partly to lower wages which is to convince schools that they should be training workers for the job market. And so schools right now in America are totally focused on the job market to the degree that we're cutting not just uh, arts and literature classes, but really basic like cutting history classes from our schools in order to teach job skills that will ultimately just lower everyone's wages anyway. The market mechanisms that are supposed to kick in, that are supposed to reward you for being smart enough to go to college and, and learn to program computers or whatever uh, skills you said you were supposed to learn, have not kicked in. And it makes us start to wonder whether those mechanisms ever existed in the first place or whether it was just a nice story about how markets work. So one of the ways that the cutting edge of economists in the United States have started talking about why wages aren't increasing is this idea of employer monopsony. So a monopoly is when there's one seller. A monopsony is when there's one buyer. In a labor monopsony, you have employers, instead of competing against each other for workers, which is what theoretically they're supposed to do. Theoretically, you know, Google is supposed to compete with Facebook for the best coders. Uh, and if they have to pay more, they have to keep paying more. And wages go up and up and up. And this is positive uh, influence on, on wages for people. Employer monopsony is a different model that says instead of competing with each other, the way firms actually behave is collaborative. They work together to push wages down. And this happened uh, explicitly in the tech sector where a lot of the biggest companies, including Google and Facebook, had to pay huge fines 
for conspiring together to keep wages down for coders. And these are the coders. These are the people who work for Google, right? These are the, this is the best job that you could have if you're a millennial. And still, these companies are conspiring with what are supposed to be their enemies, supposed to be their competition. But when it comes to pushing wages down, they're all on the same team. Deunionization is a huge problem in the United States. Uh, I mentioned Reagan a little bit earlier, but the proportion of unionized workers in the United States has fallen precipitously from, I think it was over 50%, to now I think it's around 10. And the unions, uh, while losing so many of their members, have had to become more conservative and had to protect uh, older members and so then they've become uh, less appealing to younger workers. And this is something we're seeing changing a little bit in the United States, especially in the media world, where we've seen a lot of organizing going on and a lot of unionization. But in general, throughout the economy, millennials are actually less likely to join unions uh, than older workers, which is too bad because they could help us, but they haven't. Um, we haven't seen them help us in the same way. As long as the capitalist class controls production in a place, this is a Marxist concept, every day they get stronger and workers get weaker. This thesis sort of fell out of fashion post-war in sort of the golden age of social democratic capitalism, where it seemed like the old division between workers and owners was sort of overplayed and we could all rise together. Both wages and productivity rise together. Then they cut. And so the immiseration thesis holds that the longer uh, capitalists control uh, your society, the better off they're going to be, the worse off workers are going to be. Okay, so human capital. This is probably maybe the most important concept when thinking about millennials because our lives have been so oriented around it. I can't remember what definition. It's a quantification of the economic value of a worker's skills and abilities useful in production. So if you imagine you could buy one of us as a worker, what would we be worth? That's what human capital is. And so for many of us, our, our youth was dominated by people telling us that we had to increase our human capital. We had to build our skills uh, no matter what, because this is a, a very competitive world and it's gonna be a very competitive job market and the only way to make sure you would stay afloat is by accumulating human capital skills uh, like a lifeboat. And that's not just um, being a programmer or something, that's even things like knowing how to use your phone, you know, always being aware. These are, these are small things, but they are useful for employers, especially in the US education system the value to employers is, is highlighted above everything else. And so they've retooled our education system toward the production of human capital with the idea that with more human capital, our lives would be better, productivity increases. The problem with that, as we've seen, is that the increase in human capital doesn't guarantee any particular division of the proceeds from that capital. In fact, what it leads to is an oversupply of human capital, which leads to a, a shrinking demand. A company like Uber, for example, an on-demand economy uh, company, benefits from having workers that they didn't have to train, that already have human capital skills built in. 
So a company like Uber is parasitic on the state because they rely on the state to still train people to drive. Uber isn't training any drivers in anything. Um, so they take those skills that you know, the whole society pays to uh, create in its citizens and they profit from them. And it's not just driving, it's also the ability to use your phone, for example, the ability to communicate effectively in a work situation, the, how to tell between what's appropriate and inappropriate, to, how to know what music to put on you know, when you're driving these cars. These are all human capital skills that seem like they should be valuable, but the more of them that employers have available, the less they have to pay. Millennials look like we are, we're near so much wealth, we are around so much wealth, that the idea that we can't take care of ourselves, or the, the idea that life is like hard or struggle, seems ridiculous, you know? How can you be struggling and eating avocado toast at the same time? And so that's, in some ways, sort of a conspiracy on behalf of owners to make us look ridiculous when we complain. And it's been pretty effective. Uh, there's a story about a young woman named Talia Levin who worked for Yelp. And she worked for Yelp doing um, in their, their food delivery unit. And she wrote a blog post to her, to her boss, to the CEO of Yelp, saying, we don't make enough to feed ourselves and live in San Francisco. The Bay Area is one of the most expensive places to live in the world. And the people who are doing the the low-level grudge work for these you know, multi-billion dollar companies, for the drivers of the economy, don't make enough to feed themselves. And she wrote this really impassioned, I thought was a, a strong piece. You know how people responded. It wasn't saying, oh wow, you're right, you know, look at those numbers, how would you even think to feed yourself on that? How would you take care of yourself? What they did is they went to her Instagram. And what they found on her Instagram is pictures of her, you know, one picture with a nice bottle of whiskey. And they say, well, I found this picture of you with a nice bottle of whiskey. How can you be poor? You can't, be, you can't be, have a hard time uh, taking care of yourself. We, I, I checked your Instagram. At the same time, the Instagram is a representation of ourselves that we put forward for other people. You wouldn't put on your Instagram like, oh, I'm hungry, but I don't have enough in my bank account to go buy a hamburger. You don't want to represent yourself like that because you know, poverty scares people. So instead, you represent yourself as someone who's doing well, as someone who uh, has the things you're supposed to have at that time, someone who's just, just normal, just getting along. And we all represent ourselves in that way. And that makes sense because it's, it's useful to intimidate your competition, for example. You don't want to look like someone who, who's weak. You want to present yourself as someone who's strong because you're constantly in competition with all of your peers. And so to, to admit that you're struggling is to also admit weakness. There are consequences, <laughs> deep, bad consequences. So social trust for American millennials, do you think the average person can be trusted? With Generation X, which is a famously you know, cynical, they don't believe in anything, all the grand narratives are gone, they're very postmodern, their level of social trust hovered at around 20%. For millennials, that cut, cut in half. So now it's only one in 10 people think that most people can be trusted. You turn the world into one giant, massive multiplayer online game where everyone is struggling with everyone else at all times. 
Theoretically, we invented society so that this wouldn't happen, so that we wouldn't have to struggle against every other person all the time. Insofar as that's the definition of society, it's society itself that seems to be breaking down with social trust. People are having a hard time just living. I told you the average millennial is $30,000 in debt. That means they're making student loan payments every month. And not only are they $30,000 in debt, they're going to end up paying uh, probably around double that in terms of actually paying it back because the interest rates are what really kill you on student loans. And the government doesn't need their money back fast because they're the government. They control the treasury. So they can just sit and wait as you pay that back for decades and decades and decades, hundreds of dollars a month, every month, for your entire working life. And that's what people are looking at in terms of struggle. And those are the lucky ones. Those are the ones who got college educations. So it gets materially difficult to be a millennial in ways that we don't really recognize or don't like to acknowledge. And then the third one, anxiety and depression. Uh, one of the nice things about psychology as a discipline is that they keep the same uh, tests around, one specifically called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory means they can give it year after year and compare longitudinally people's responses. And I'm pretty skeptical talking about mental health generationally comparatively because the words we use change so often and the like, you know, someone who is depressed in the 50s might not be depressed today or our conception of these terms changes, language changes so much. But then I looked at the numbers, and the numbers are, are very, very convincing. Uh, Gene Twenge, who's someone I, I mentioned earlier, has done really, I think, some solid meta-analyses with some other folks of these surveys over time. And what they found is that the average uh, young person now, kid, under 18, scores in the same range in terms of anxiety and depression and fear as the average child psychiatric hospital patient did in the 50s. So that means that the average kid now is as depressed, as anxious as a kid who would have been institutionalized 50 years ago, put in a, in a, a cell for like full-time observation and recovery. So we're kind of broken as a, as a cohort of people. We are a little bit broken. I'm not scared to say it. Do we deserve to be? We're the generation that's supposed to be entitled to progress. Not just like the internet, not just phones. We're supposed to be entitled to a world without struggle. And I think we are, and I think we should be. And I think that's uh, deserved not because some of us are Americans or where we might be born. That's our species patrimony. That's the premise of modernism, is that we learn more, we're able to build on what we accomplish uh, as a species, as human beings, and that as time we get less and less focused on you know, how to provide the essentials, how to feed ourselves, how to house ourselves, and more and more on ideas and aesthetics um, and higher concerns. And so when people talk about millennials being entitled or arrogant, which is a common criticism, at least in the US, is that we all want very fulfilling work. We all want to make a difference as well as get paid. Um, well, I think that's bullshit. I think we are entitled to that. We do deserve based on when we were born, to be able to spend our time on these higher concerns. That's the kind of world uh, we were supposed to be born into. And even like happiness, 
Are we entitled to happiness? Maybe not, but we're entitled to a better shot at it than we've been given. Um, so I think we need to, to embrace that a little bit, embrace that millennial entitlement. And yet, we are not entitled. In America, we have a system called Social Security that you pay into throughout your working life. Every paycheck, they take money out of your paycheck, and it goes to Social Security. And when you're working, that goes to support older people, and the idea is that uh, in the future, you will also be supported uh, by other workers. And it's supposed to allow you to retire at the age of 65. In addition, you have private savings. And if you talk to any American millennials or about, are you saving for retirement? You know, what are your reti retirement savings like? I have no retirement savings. No one even thinks about that. The idea that we'd ever be able to stop working and live on money that we've just saved seems such an antiquated idea. They like the idea that this is an antiquated idea. So Social Security, for example, they say it'll be insolvent by 2034, and Medicare is the program that cares for elderly people for their health insurance, which is also free uh, after a certain point in America, at least has been in the past. So the average the actuaries say that the average millennial couple, the average millennial household, will pay over a million dollars into Social Security over the course of their working lives. They'll have a million dollars taken out in taxes from their paychecks just directly. Then you survey millennials and you ask them how much they expect to get back from that you know, average million dollars that they're gonna put in as households. 51% of millennials think they will get zero dollars in Social Security returns, nothing. That, they will that the whole thing will just be bankrupt Something I've always found interesting is that American millennials still support this program that they think they'll get nothing out of and will just be giving a million dollars to old people. Which I think speaks well for us you know, as a cohort is that we see the value of the idea of social insurance even if it hasn't been awarded to us in the same way that it's been awarded to other people. We're not saying we're not gonna pay these taxes anymore because we don't think we're gonna get anything out of it. We still want to pay to support older people um, we're just very pessimistic about our situation. The easiest way we have to characterize generations is through consumption data. We generate it automatically whenever we buy anything. In America, at least, we think of consumption as choices that reveal who we are. So if millennials are living in smaller houses, that must mean that millennials are people who like living in smaller houses. We must find value in that. If millennials are people who don't have job security, who don't have benefits, we must be people who don't want job security or don't like benefits. Our fate must be something that we've chosen because our choices are to embrace it or nothing. There's really no choice. You can embrace it or you can be sad about it. To close, I wanna talk about how we can think a little bit better about these questions and about the millennial discourse. One way is fact-based claims. A lot of the claims about millennials are really just wild generalizations that have nothing to do with the evidence. Um, people like hearing those. They find great purchase within the media just for talking about millennials. Anything about millennials, it's a great branding term that's been sold to us by brand, branding artists. We can counter their work, their, their branding artistry, by looking at facts, by looking at longitudinal facts. We don't need to be looking at just like the last couple years. We need to be looking at the last century because that's where we fit in. We need to be looking historically. Watch out for projection. So a lot of the 
characterizations of millennials, especially the negative ones that we get from older generations, are projections from those older generations about their own guilt about the historical role that they played. If you got more out of society than anyone had ever gotten before, you were the wealthiest generation of all time, and you happened to, let's say, ruin the climate forever. You wouldn't want to identify that way. You wouldn't want to you know, take credit for that necessarily. You find someone else to blame. And so you blame those entitled millennials with their iPads or whatever. They must be what's wrong. But that's guilt projection from older generations about what their actual role has been in society. And so we need to keep them accountable for what they've actually done as opposed to what they're able to project onto us. Beware marketers. I said this, I, this is a recurring element, and not just because they are my professional competition, because they are my professional competition, but you should ask you know, who pays people's bills. If they're a writer about millennials, you should wonder where they're making their money. Like Jean Twenge, for example, she'll get $10,000 to go talk to the American Petroleum Institute about how to sell tiny cars to millennials, for example, because we don't want regular sized cars, we only want tiny cars. And if someone's doing that, if you're speaking to marketers, you're by definition speaking to capitalists because labor, laborers are people who only have our, our work to sell. If you've got something else to sell, you're a capitalist. So people who get paid to talk about how to sell things are only talking to capitalists and that's the people they're interested in appealing to. That's the version of the millennial that they're selling. So we need to call them out and ignore what they're saying. The question is who benefits, and we need to think about that constantly, not just in terms of who benefits by what's happened to millennials, but that which is an important question, but also who benefits from talking about millennials the way we've talked about millennials. Who benefits from this you know, avocado toast stereotype? It's not me, but there are people out there who do benefit from this current state of affairs, and they have addresses. We should find them. Straka Institute podcast is where we publish some of the most popular lectures that took place at Straka throughout the years. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't miss the next episode in a week's time.